Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, we're going back to the start of it all. Well, the start of most of it all uh, with the platforming giant, the Italian himself, Mario in Super Mario Bros. It's a me. Yeah, (laughs) I'm very excited for this one. It's not quite going all the way back to like Pong or anything like that, but Mm -hmm. this game... So revolutionary, we see the influence that Super Mario Brothers has had, obviously not only on the company of Nintendo as the flagship character, but just video games as a whole and platformers as a whole. So this one is still one of my favorites. I go back and play this game every once in a while when I just kind of want to like lay back and relax and I'll pick up the Switch and just kind of play it on the uh, virtual console and have a good time still yeah and, it holds and, up and this along with the legend of zelda really surmised and built out most of the games that we're seeing today especially coming for like some of the first major console titles that are coming to nintendo that you know stood the test of time not only in their gameplay of their original game but where we see them evolve to today uh, and the various nintendo characters that have stuck around so it's amazing to see the influences um, from a lot from both Zelda and Mario that we see in a lot of indie titles, a lot of major triple A titles uh, that have taken these ideas, even just in level design and ran with it. Yeah. Super Mario. I mean, just what a crazy concept. A plumber goes down a pipe and all of a sudden he's running around in worlds, jumping on mushroom people, trying to stop a giant lizard slash turtle to save a princess named Daisy. Oh, wait, no, actually, it is a toad-headed person. Whenever they came up with the concept for this game, just absolutely bananas ideas Mm -hmm. that resulted in something really fun and iconic and obviously still carries on today with all the crazy Mario games that exist, whether Mm -hmm. it be playing tennis, driving go-karts, jumping on a party board, being in the Olympics, it doesn't matter. Crazy to think it all came from this one little game, Super Mario Brothers. Mario Bros. he's an all-around guy. So Super Mario Bros. is a platform game developed and published by Nintendo. The successor to the 1983 arcade game Mario Bros. and the first in Super Mario series, it was released in 1985 for the Famicom in Japan. Following a limited U.S. release for the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, it was ported to international arcades for the Nintendo vs. System 
in early 1986. The NES version received a wide release in North America that year and in the PAL regions in 1987. Players control Mario or his brother Luigi in the multiplayer mode as they travel the Mushroom Kingdom to rescue Princess Toadstool from Bowser, known as King Koopa. They traverse side-scrolling stages while avoiding hazards such as enemies and pits with the aid of power-ups such as the Super Mushroom, Fire Flower, and Starman. The game was designed by Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka as a grand culmination of the Famicom team's three years of game mechanics and programming, drawing from their experiences working on Devil World and the side-scrollers Excite Bike and Kung Fu to advance their previous work on platforming athletic games such as Donkey Kong and Mario Bros. The design of the first level, World 1-1, serves as a tutorial for platform gameplay. Super Mario Bros. is frequently cited as one of the greatest video games of all time, with praise for its precise controls. It is one of the best-selling games of all time, with more than 58 million copies sold worldwide. It is credited, alongside the NES, as one of the key factors in reviving the video game industry after the 1983 crash and helped popularize the side-scrolling platform game genre. Koji Kondo's soundtrack is one of the earliest and most popular in video games, making music into a centerpiece of game design. The game began a multimedia franchise, including a long-running game series, an animated television series, and a feature film, soon to be another. It has been re-released on most Nintendo systems, and Mario and Super Mario Bros. have become prominent in popular culture, And you and I had talked about this off screen, off camera, off mic, that when you hear the name Mario, a lot of people, for the most part, will associate it with uh, our our fine Italian fellow. I've never met, no, that's not true. I've met one man named Mario in real life, and he works with my dad, and he kind of looks like this Mario. So Mm -hmm. stereotypes aside... Um, they did a pretty good job, I guess, designing Mario after my dad's friend. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mario has just become such a big thing. It, it, and it doesn't seem to matter what type of game they put him in. Like I was saying, it doesn't matter if it's tennis or carts or sports or baseball mm-hmm. or whatever. Soccer. Um, it's just crazy how this random plumber design character has become so iconic. So. Let's talk a little bit about the studio. We've talked about Nintendo on plenty of the podcasts in the past. We've talked about Koji Kondo a lot as well, that Mm -hmm. iconic soundtrack. But during the 1970s, when Nintendo was still predominantly a toy company, it decided to expand into interactive entertainment and the video game industry. Several designers were hired to work under the creative department, which at the time was the only game development department within Nintendo. Among these new designers were Makoto Kano, who went on to design various Game & Watch games, and Shigeru Miyamoto, who would create various Nintendo franchises. In 1972, the department was renamed to Research and Development Department, and it had about 20 employees. The department was later consolidated into a division and separated into three groups, Nintendo R&D 1, R&D 2, and R&D 3. Around 1983 and 1984, In the wake of Donkey Kong's commercial success, a game designed by Shigeru Miyamoto and Hiroshi Amanishi oversaw the creation of Research and Development No. 4 department, commonly abbreviated to Nintendo R&D 4, as a new development department dedicated to developing video game titles for dedicated consoles 
complementing the other three existing departments in the Nintendo Manufacturing Division, greenlit by then-Nintendo President Hiroshi Yamauchi. Imanishi appointed Hiroshi Ikeda, a former anime director at Toei Animation, as general manager of the newly created department, and Miyamoto as its chief producer, who would later become one of the most recognized video game developers in the world. Nintendo also drafted a couple of key graphic designers to the department, including Takashi Tezuka and Kenji Miki. With the arcade market dwindling, Nintendo R&D 1's former focus, the department concentrated most of their software development resources on the emerging handheld video game console market, primarily thanks to the worldwide success of Nintendo's Game Boy. This catapulted the R&D 4 department to become the lead software developer for Nintendo home video game consoles, developing a myriad of games for the family computer home console abbreviated to Famicom, known as the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America, Europe, and Australia. Hiroshi Akita's creative team had many video game design ideas, but lacked the necessary programming power to make it all happen. Toshihiko Nakago and his small company Systems Research and Development, SRD, had its expertise in computer-aided design, or CAD, tools, and was very familiar with the Famicom chipset, and was originally hired to work with Masayuki Imura's Nintendo R&D 2 to internally develop software development kits, so making those dev kits we've talked about for other people to be able to produce on those systems. When Nintendo R&D 2 and SRD jointly began porting over R&D 1 arcade games to the Famicom, Shigeru Miyamoto took the opportunity to lure Nakago away from R&D 2 with his mantras and his tantalizing games. <laughs> Is this as, Jeff as, Goldblum that <laughs> yes. actually lured him away? That was actually Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> uh, to help Miyamoto Goldblum create his first Nintendo R&D 4 video game, Excitebike. And so the original R&D 4 department became composed of Miyamoto, Takashi Tezuka, Kenji Miki, and Minoru Maeda, handling design, Koji Kondo, Akito Nakatsuka, and Hirokazu Tanaka, handling sound design, and, and Toshi Hiku Nakago, and SRD became the technology and programming core. I threw so many Japanese names in that one time, Derek. I think I'm broken. Yeah. No, that's... <laughs> yes. I'm so glad that you took this section because it is very challenging. As far as those uh, development systems go, I don't know if you've actually seen one in action or if the listeners haven't. Uh, One of these ended up on a Pawn Stars episode where Mm -hmm. they they go and use that. So if you're looking for any kind of actual functional use or history on those development systems, it's pretty interesting. Uh, Those videos are on YouTube and it's worth checking out. It is really neat to see like what, what has to be created to make those dev kits and those dev consoles to be able to play around with and understand what you're even making. Like, like how do you program for this thing and make it function from a cartridge to this, to the TV, to these input controls, all working at the same time based on your code? Absolutely. The same Miyamoto-led team that developed Excitebike went on to develop a 1985 NES port of the scrolling beat-em-up arcade game Kung Fu Master called Kung Fu. Miyamoto's team used the technical knowledge they had gained from working on both side-scrollers to further advance the platforming athletic game genre 
they had created with Donkey Kong and were key steps towards Miyamoto's vision of an expansive side-scrolling platformer. One of the first games developed by the R&D 4 department was Mario Bros. in 1983, designed and directed by Miyamoto. The department was, however, unable to program the game with such an inexperienced team and so counted on programming assistance from Gunpei Yoki and the R&D 1 department. One of the first completely self-developed games was Super Mario Bros., the sequel to Mario Bros. The game set standards for the platform genre and went on to be both a critical and commercial success. Adding the super was very key yes. to differentiating these games. Although know. not really. That's how you know. And then they just they they just kept they were like, well, it worked for Mario Bros. We just added super to it, mm-hmm. changed it up a little bit. Let's just do that for the console. This is no longer the Nintendo Entertainment System. It is the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. So you know it's good. I used to work for an ice cream store that called their ice cream super premium. That's how you knew it was better. Exactly. You know, you have your premium, <laughs> hit it with that super, boom, sequel to it. Beautiful. I'd say Finish the Fight is a super podcast. Maybe oh. we should re- rebrand Super Finish the Fight. Welcome to Finish the a Fight. Super a gaming super podcast. gaming podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so Super Mario Bros. was designed by Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka, as we said, of the Nintendo Creative Department, and largely programmed by Toshihiko Nakago of SRD Company LTD. The original Mario Bros. released in 1983 and is an arcade platformer that takes place on a single screen with a black background. Miyamoto used the term athletic games to refer to what would later be known as platform games. For Super Mario Bros., Miyamoto wanted to create a more colorful athletic game with a scrolling screen and larger characters. Development was a culmination of their technical knowledge from working on the 1984 titles Devil World, Bike and Kung Fu, along with their desire to further advance the platforming athletic game genre they had created with their earlier games. The side-scrolling gameplay of racing game Bike and Beat-Em-Up Kung Fu Master, the latter ported by Miyamoto's team to the NES's Kung Fu, were key steps toward Miyamoto's vision of an expansive side-scrolling platformer. In turn, Kung Fu Master was an adaptation of the Jackie Chan film Wheels on Meals. While working on Bike and Kung Fu, he came up with the concept of a platformer that would have the player strategize while scrolling sideways over long distances, have above-ground and underground levels, and have colorful backgrounds rather than black backgrounds. Super Mario Bros. used the fast-scrolling game engine Miyamoto's team had originally developed for Bike, which allowed Mario to smoothly accelerate from a walk to a run rather than move at a constant speed like in earlier platformers. Miyamoto also wanted to create a game that would be the, quote, final exclamation point for the ROM cartridge format before the forthcoming Famicom Disk System was released. Super Mario Bros. was made in tandem with The Legend of Zelda, another Famicom game, directed and designed by Miyamoto, and released in Japan five months later. And the game shared some elements. For instance, the fire bars that appear in the Mario Castle levels began as objects in Zelda. Yeah, like fun stuff like that's really cool to see. I mean, especially like, I mean, you have two of the biggest powerhouse teams of like Zelda and Mario coming together and be like, yeah, I designed both of those. No big deal. I did them at the same time. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know how it is. 
And I've played both of these games, and the the fire bars in Mario, it's interesting because Zelda has sort of a top-down look to it where Mario is that true uh, fourth-wall side-scrolling type mm-hmm. of game. And so these fire pillars are spinning around almost from a downward angle in a dungeon. And the same fire pillars that are being used now are sort of spinning uh, in the same direction as you're running within this game. And obviously, it's just a little bit of a perspective trick. But once you realize that they're the same, um, it's interesting to see what they borrowed from these two games. And it's cool. I mean, you see a lot of that in game dev now, too, of just having game development assets available to you. And at that time, when you're programming and having artists do these things, it's like, like you said, change the perspective up a bit, move them in there, or use some code. To have a new game available for the end of year shopping season, Nintendo aimed for simplicity. They started with a prototype in which the player moved a 16 by 32 pixel square around a single screen. Tezuka suggested using Mario after seeing the sales figures of Mario Bros. The team chose the name Super Mario Bros. after implementing the Super Mushroom power-up. Just being like, hey, listen, mushrooms, regular. Super mushrooms, top of the line. Exactly. Add a super. (laughs) Add a super, you make it better. The game initially used a concept in which Mario or Luigi could fly a rocket ship while firing at enemies, but this went unused. The final game's sky-based bonus stages are a remnant of this concept. The team found it illogical that Mario was hurt by stomping on turtles in Mario Bros., so decided that future Mario games would definitely have it so that you could jump on turtles all you want. Miyamoto initially imagined Bowser as an ox inspired by the Ox King from the Toei animation film Alakazam the Great from 1960. However, Tezuka decided he looked more like a turtle, and they collaborated to create his final design. You can see that, a little bit of that oxiness, kind of with the horns, a couple of other like, ideas mixed in with Bowser. He's an ox yeah, turtle. Th- Super ox they've turtle. Never, yeah, they've never really given an explanation for why he looks the way that he does, but ox turtle makes a lot of sense there you go the development of super mario bros is an early example of specialization in the video game industry made possible and necessary by the famicom's arcade capable hardware miyamoto designed the game world and led a team of seven programmers and artists who turned his ideas into code sprites music and sound effects developers of previous hit games joined the team importing many special programming techniques features and design refinements such as these Donkey Kong slopes, lifts, conveyor belts, and ladders, Donkey Kong Jr.'s ropes, logs and springs, and Mario Bros. enemy attacks, enemy movement, frozen platforms, and POW blocks. So yeah, I mean, you do see that. You see a lot of those taken from what now has become this universe, you know, this Donkey Kong Mario universe that's starting to be established, and using those sprites and those programming techniques of, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to have to, like, make conveyor belts and make these like movable ladders that go to make your sprite interact with that thing on screen and we could bring those devs in who did it before and then apply all of it into this new thing it creates something special and what's interesting about that idea i think is that now we appreciate callbacks to previous titles in a video game franchise as sort of like a nostalgia thing Mm-hmm. Where it's like really cool to come upon an item from the first game when you're playing the sequel, maybe you're a new character or something. But they're just using these things because they only have a, a limited number of assets and they're just trying to make a better game. 
And yep. I think that they unintentionally built a universe in that way where they just kept making these things consistent staples of the series and in doing so just established them as basically that just staples of the series intentional or not kind of invented like video game canon of like what's part of a universe what's part of this type of character what's their code of conduct who have they interacted with definitely starts with these like very early ones like you had the arcade machines that had some semblance of story with it in mortal Kombat and street fighter things like that but when it comes to like going through multiple games in that sense not just like a told story but an implied one where there's different things in different games this is kind of a start to it the team based the level design around a small mario intending to later make his size bigger in the final version but decided it would be fun to let mario change his size via a power-up the early level design was focused on teaching players that mushrooms were distinct from goombas and would be beneficial to them So in the first level of the game, the first mushroom is difficult to avoid if it is released. The use of mushrooms to change size was influenced by Japanese folktales in which people wander into forests and eat magical mushrooms. This also resulted in the game world being known as the Mushroom Kingdom. The team had Mario begin levels as small Mario to make obtaining a mushroom more gratifying. Miyamoto explained, When we made the prototype of the big Mario, we did not feel he was big enough. So we came up with the idea of showing the smaller Mario first, who could be made bigger later in the game. Then players could see and feel that he was bigger. Miyamoto denied rumors that developers implemented a small Mario after a bug caused only his upper half to appear. Miyamoto said the shell-kicking one-up trick was carefully tested, but people turned out to be a lot better at pulling the trick off for ages on end than we thought. (laughs) Other features, such as blocks containing multiple coins, were inspired by programming glitches. It's just, it's so cool to hear like the backstory of these things that are kind of integral to playing it, of like hitting those multi-coin blocks and seeing like how many times you can hit it before like basically the timer on it runs out, Um, as well as like getting into that infinite shell kick where you can kind of keep jumping up and down in the shell, earning points, and then until uh, you hit like a max where it stops doing points and gives you one-ups, and then you basically abuse the system and get infinite lives. Super Mario Bros. was developed for a cartridge with 256 kilobits of program code and data and 64 kilobits of sprite and background graphics. Due to this storage limitation, the designers happily considered their aggressive search for space-saving opportunities to be akin to their own fun television game show competition. For instance, clouds and bushes in the game's backgrounds use that same sprite recolored, and background tiles are generated via an automatic algorithm. Sound effects were also recycled. The sound when Mario is damaged is the same as when he enters a pipe, and Mario jumping on an enemy is the same sound as each stroke when swimming. Fun level. Mm -hmm. After completing the game, the development team decided that they should introduce players with a simple, easy-to-defeat enemy rather than beginning the game with Koopa Troopas. By this point, the project had nearly run out of memory, so the designers created the Goombas by making a single static image and flipping it back and forth to save space while creating a convincing character animation. After the addition of the game's music, around 20 bytes of open cartridge space remained. Miyamoto used this remaining space to add a sprite of a crown into the game, which would appear in the player's life counter as a reward for obtaining at least 10 lives. It's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to see how much 
especially in these early days, how much had to like reuse, sacrifice, moved around, shrunken down, used for different things to make this fit. And we see it even like Crash Bandicoot in these early PS1 days and, and plenty of other games that had to be creative with their limited space. And these cartridge system developers just love to like really push the limits mm-hmm. of what they could add into that game. Any space unused, it was like, well, maybe we can do this thing. I mean, you look at Pokemon Red where Red and Blue, where they go and add Mew at the very last minute with that yep. very, very limited space just to try and, you know, put something fun in for the developers or whatever. Like yeah, they were what, absolutely what, testing the limits of these cartridge games. Oh, oh yeah, just just to push it. And like you said, like a lot of it's even just like hidden dev things, just that we know that we did it and like we maxed out. It's got zero bytes left for us to even yeah. fill anything in. And like this is for us. It's really cool. And we discussed this earlier, level design. Level design is one of the most important things that put Super Mario Bros above almost any platformer in that era and onward up until 3D platformers even start coming out. And even then, those were experiments on how do you break that fourth wall of like going towards the screen, away from the screen. What is 3D? But this is kind of the basis for it. So I want to talk about World 1-1, the first world you get into. The first world where a Goomba starts walking your way from the right, and then you got a couple blocks to get that mushroom. The so-called tutorial world. Exactly. During the third generation of video game consoles, tutorials on video game mechanics were rare, so players were oriented to a new video game by its level design. The opening sections of Nintendo Entertainment System games such as Metroid, The Legend of Zelda, and Super Mario Bros. are all designed to force players to explore the game mechanics to be able to advance. Super Mario Bros. is the first side-scrolling video game featuring Mario, and one of the first video games directed and designed by Shigeru Miyamoto. Rather than confront the player with obstacles indiscriminately, its first level introduces the variety of hazards and objects by directing the player to interact with them while advancing. Miyamoto explained that he designed World 1-1 to contain everything players need to gradually and naturally understand what they're doing, to be able to play more freely, so that it becomes their game. At the start of World 1-1, the player controls Mario to immediately encounter a slowly approaching Goomba. According to OneUp.com, it is likely that this first enemy will kill a novice player, even though the enemy can easily be avoided by jumping over it. Sometimes, to be honest, you get a little excited, you run into it, it's okay. Mm -hmm. All of us have done it. (laughs) Not me, but everyone else. Of course. You know, yeah. No, I've definitely done it. As very little progress is lost, the player learns from defeat and can try again. Past this Goomba comes an arrangement of blocks, a few of which are colored in gold. Bumping one of them from below releases a coin. According to Miyamoto, seeing a coin come out will, quote, make the player happy and want to repeat the action. Doing so for the second gold-colored block makes a mushroom come out as a surprise power-up, a super power-up, you Mm -hmm. might say. Mm -hmm. The player has learned from the Goomba that mushroom-shaped beings are bad, so perhaps the player tries to avoid the power-up mushroom, but the corridor of blocks foils escape. Touching the mushroom makes Mario grow in size and strength, another positive reinforcement. Next comes a series of four vertical warp pipe obstacles that must be jumped over. Each has a different height, subtly teaching the player that holding the jump button longer makes a higher jump. When encountering variously sized pits, 
the player may discover how to use the button for running because running makes a bigger jump across the pits. Furthermore, Miyamoto ensured that some pits have floors and can be simply jumped out of instead of killing Mario and forcing the replay of the entire level. World 1-1 includes a few secrets that players can discover by replaying, such as a pipe leading to a bonus room and a hidden block containing a 1-up. The pipe also skips much of the level to expedite the experienced players. World 1-1 has been cited as one of the most iconic video game levels, described by Chris Kerr of Gamasutra as, quote, legendary. Boston Blake of Game Rant rated it among the best opening levels in video games for having ignited a love for gaming in the hearts of gamers around the world, and John Irwin of Pace Magazine described it as a masterclass in teaching players how to play. Jeremy Parrish of 1UP.com stated that much of the game's success arose from the fact that it equipped players with the tools to master it from the very beginning. Almost all mechanics subsequently introduced in the game are variations of those in World 1-1, and the first levels of later Mario games such as Super Mario Bros. 3 also expand upon them. Parrish described it as, quote, the most widely imitated, referenced, and parodied single level of a video game. Yeah, you know, Super Mario Bros., it's the first Dark Souls. It doesn't tell you how to play. <laughs> it just thrusts you in. And you must learn from these mechanics early on how to do it. So if you haven't beaten it yet, it's technically the first Dark Souls. Dark, you know, then you had Demon Souls, which tried to throw you off the track to get Dark Souls back on. Technically first Dark Souls. And so talking about like, you know, worlds made on purpose that are made to be, again, the Dark Souls. Of what we're talking about. We also <laughs> the Super have Dark Souls. Super Dark Souls, excuse me. Excuse me. This was Super Dark Souls. The other ones were iterations. Understandable. We cleared it up. We also have Minus World. Now, the Minus World or World Negative One is an unbeatable glitch level present in the original NES release. World 1 2 contains a hidden warp zone with warp pipes that transport the player to worlds 2, 3, and 4, accessed by running over a wall near the exit. If the player is able to exploit a bug that allows Mario to pass through bricks, the player can enter the warp zone by passing through the wall and the pipe to world 2-1 and 4-1 may instead transport the player to an underwater stage labeled world negative 1 or world minus 1. This stage's map is identical to worlds 2-2 and 7-2 and upon entering the warp pipe at the end, the player is taken back to the start of the level thus trapping the player in the level until all lives have been lost. Although the level name is shown as minus one, with a leading space on the heads-up display, it is actually World 36-1, with the title for 36 being shown as a blank space. So again, the Dark Souls of games. You find yourself traveling through a brick through a glitch exploit, and they say, uh, no, 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 no. And you are trapped <laughs> in this world forever. And it being a water world, too, that you're trapped in forever. Which Nintendo, of all the gaming developers, is definitely the most devious when it comes to water levels. Yeah. And it's very Downright interesting. Downright sadistic, even. Downright. Dark Souls sadistic, some might say. Now, the Minus <laughs> World bug in the Japanese Famicom Disk System version of the game behaves differently and creates multiple completable stages. World Minus One is an underwater version of World 1-3 with an underwater level color palette and underwater level music and contains sprites of Princess Toadstool, Bowser, and Hammer Bros. World Minus Two is an identical copy of World 7-3. 
and world minus three is a copy of world four four with an underground level color palette and underground level music and does not loop if the player takes the wrong path contrary to the original world four four so in four four it's like a maze of paths you have to take like the top one the bottom one the middle one and hit all of them in sequence to get to the end otherwise it repeats you ah uh. The, there is actually an intended version of that. One of the Bowser castles yep. does that to you. Yep. It's, it, yeah, 4-4 four, four allows that to kind of happen with it. Now, after completing the level, Toad's usual message is displayed, but Toad himself is absent. After completing these levels, the game returns to the title screen as if completed and is now replayable as if in a harder mode since it's higher than World 8. There are hundreds of glitch levels beyond the Minus World. 256 worlds are present, including the eight playable ones, which can be accessed in a multitude of ways, such as cheat codes and ROM hacking. Yeah, it's very interesting. I myself, as, as many times as I've played this game, have mm-hmm. never gone into the Minus World. But I've definitely seen like videos and stuff of it where it seems stressful. Ooh, Dark yeah. Souls-esque. Might say. Dark Souls S. Uh, there we go. I mean, it, it is really cool. It's it's very neat. That's why I do miss a lot of the older game code like this. That's so simplistic yeah. and very not easy to break. But when it does, it breaks spectacularly. Right, and it's makes not, for just an interesting way. It's not getting caught in a random cloud space in the sky or something mm-hmm. or underneath, looking up at a map like in a lot of the modern game day breaks. It's more like this game now has a level that should not be there at all. Yes. And what I find interesting as well is that, you know, we've talked about it a few times, I think, but translation issues, and we usually just talk about how it really influences the perception of a character, but Mm -hmm. you have a Famicom version of this game, an NES version of this game, and they game break in two different ways. Yep. So now we have a game that the translation issues and the way that they've designed the Famicom versus the NES results in totally different glitches, which is really interesting to me. It is. And, and it even travels on through further Mario games. So I believe, I believe Yoshi's Island is Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island. I think that's the, t- the total title of it. But if you want to see some game-breaking bugs... That's the game to look at, especially having transformations, very much like the power-ups in here, but allowing Yoshi to be, you know, a bulldozer, a train, a helicopter, and exploiting those and exploiting the various other sprites in the game. It's pretty insane. I've definitely never played a game where Yoshi was a helicopter, so... Oh, you're missing out. You've lost me, but I didn't have Super Nintendo, so... So obviously, Super Mario Bros. and Mario in general, not only... This video game, but has gone on to have his own movie, his own TV show, like we said, with an upcoming another film. Mm-hmm. And this series as a whole has just inspired various media products. In October 1985, Takuma Shoten published the book Super Mario Bros. The Complete Strategy Guide. Its content is partly recycled from Family Computer Magazine, plus new content written by Naito Yamamoto who received no royalties. Bummer. It is Japan's best-selling book of 1985 at 630,000 copies sold. Wow. That is a, that is a bummer for mm-hmm. that person. That is unfortunate. 
It is also Japan's best-selling book of 1986 with 860,000 copies by January 1986 and a total of 1.3 million. Nintendo of America later translated it into English as How to Win at Super Mario Bros. and published it in North America via the Nintendo Fun Club and early issues of Nintendo Power Magazine. The 1986 anime film Super Mario Bros. The Great Mission to Rescue Princess Peach! is acknowledged as one of the first feature-length films to be based directly off of a video game. The live-action Super Mario Bros. film was released theatrically in 1993, starring Bob Hoskins as Mario and John Leguizamo as Luigi. The American animated television series, The Super Mario Bros. Super Show, ran from 1989 to 1990, starring professional wrestler Lou Albano as Mario and Danny Wells as Luigi. An animated film based on the series created by Illumination Entertainment is currently in production. Super Mario Bros. was adapted into a pinball machine by Gottlieb, released in 1992, and it became one of America's top 10 best-selling pinball machines of 1992, receiving a gold award from the American Amusement Machine Association, or the AAMA. So, I will say this. As far as the content here and the releases of especially adaptations to film, it's the greatest that's ever been. Because the Super Mario Bros. movie, the live action one, is the one, worst is one thing of the that's greatest, ever happened. Greatest pieces of cinema. Um, but I just cannot wait for the minions to be in Mario, obviously having Illumination Entertainment there. Um, love me some minions to start my movie off. Just that's the best part of my day. So can't wait for that. <laughs> Are, is this a, like a Despicable Me thing? Like those minions? Yes, Illumination is the one who's created Despicable Me, and they use the minions at the beginning oh. of their movies. I've actually never uh, seen Despicable Me, so. It's, the first one's good. Then, ants and 40-year-old plus women on Facebook took over the minions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been on the minion ride at Universal Studios, and it was fun. Hey, you know what? Or Despicable Me exactly. ride, I don't even know. That's the best way to describe it. It's it's fun. Yeah. (laughs) It's fun. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to that too then. Well, absolutely. (laughs) Now let's break down for those of you who don't understand what Mario is or don't know. I'm going to give you the most simplistic terms of the gameplay. In Super Mario Bros., the players control Mario, the protagonist of the series. Mario's younger bro, Luigi, is controlled by the second player in the game's multiplayer mode and assumes the same plot role and functionality as Mario. The objective is to race through the Mushroom Kingdom, survive the main antagonist Bowser's forces, and save Princess Toadstool. The game is a side-scrolling platform game. The player moves to the right to reach the flagpole at the end of each level. The game consists of eight worlds and four sub-levels called stages in each world. The final stage of each world takes place in a castle where Bowser is fought above a suspension bridge. The first seven of these Bowsers are false Bowsers, whom are actually minions disguised as him, whilst the real Bowser is found in the eighth world. Spoiler. Bowser and his decoys are defeated by jumping over them and reaching the axe on the end of the bridge, although they can also be defeated using a fire flower. The game also includes some stages taking place underwater, which contain different enemies. In addition, there are bonuses and secret areas within the game. 
Most secret areas contain more coins for Mario to collect, but some certain warp pipes allow Mario to advance directly to later worlds in the game without completing the stages in between, as we had said with like World 1-2. After completing the game once, the player is rewarded with the ability to replay the game with changes made to increase its difficulty, such as all Goombas in the game being replaced with Buzzy Beetles, enemies similar to Koopa Troopas who cannot be defeated using the Firefly. And I actually take a little bit of issue with the multiplayer concept of this game. Uh, because if you're good at this game and you play as Mario, then your friend is probably not going to get to play very much. Because what happens is the game in the NES version just mm-hmm. allows the one player who's successful to keep playing level after level until they die. And then the second player just kind of has to sit there and watch. What I think they really should have done because you take on the same role is whenever one player dies, the new or the second player, Luigi, then tries to play that level and you can do it one by one together. But instead they made it to where you're both doing the same and kind of like competing for scores and stuff like that. Yep. And like whenever we had uh, Mario Maker uh, come out, which is originally for the Wii U, then on the Switch for Mario Maker 2, um, they brought in a mm-hmm. multiplayer mode where you can play these classic stages at the same time on different consoles, but you can play up to four players on a lot of these, which is really cool to take that back instead of, like you said, one at a time waiting for someone to die. But if they're, you know, perfecting the game, you just don't play. This allows like more of a, even a competitive edge of trying to get to the end the fastest to get those points. This was fixed in the SNES version of the game where they remastered this. And it became, even if the first player finished the Mm -hmm. level, the second player would then play that same level. So they did recognize that it was kind of an issue if there was a different in skill levels. Yes. It's good that they learned from that. And, 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 you know, it might have even been a space issue. And whenever you get to the Super Nintendo cartridges, you got more space. And you're fitting multiple games with that Mario All-Stars game on that one cartridge. So, you know, that's our first, like, little gaming update when you have that... uh, compilation come together of like the originals that's definitely when they established the theme of we're gonna cash in on this nostalgia we know what the people want (laughs) and i will i'm a sucker for it every single time (laughs) i bought mario like 85 times i don't even know yep you listen you slap super on it it's great you slap all stars on it i'm buying it so let's talk about the very very limited story that exists within most nes games and this one included in the fantasy setting of the mushroom kingdom a tribe of turtle-like creatures known as the koopa troopas invade the kingdom and use the magic of its king bowser to turn the inhabitants known as the mushroom people into inanimate objects such as bricks stones and horsehair plants Bowser and his army also kidnap Princess Toadstool, the princess of the Mushroom Kingdom, and the only one with the ability to reverse Bowser's spell. After hearing the news, Mario sets out to save the princess and free the kingdom from Bowser. After traveling through various parts of the kingdom and fighting Bowser's forces along the way, Mario reaches Bowser's final stronghold where he is able to defeat him by striking an axe on the bridge suspended over lava he is standing on, breaking the bridge, defeating Bowser, and allowing for the princess to be freed, and thus saving the Mushroom Kingdom. Now, we've seen that same story retold throughout plenty of Mario games. Obviously, it has just 
becomes secondary in that regard. There's mm-hmm. certain stories that have put their own little twist on it. For example, Mario Odyssey, where Peach is now uh, going to be married off to Bowser or what have you, things like that. But, you know, pretty standard mm-hmm. concept, I'd say. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I mean, it's a great like workshop concept. It's kind of like that. Give me 10 sentences to describe your whole novel. Here's they are. Go ahead and build upon them because we have varieties in Mario Sunshine, Paper Mario, ideas that are a little different, but follows that same core concept and adapts them as as you know the years go by it's again same song and dance but the music shifts it's a different era of music that you're following to see how things change absolutely and you know at the end of the day the core concept is the gameplay and that's what these games have always done so well so of course the story is basic Mm -hmm. but one of the things that's not basic and has gone on to be a massive massive theme for not only uh, I'd say the Mario titles, but really Nintendo as a whole, and that's the music and sound. And of course, we're talking about legendary Nintendo sound designer yeah. Koji Kondo, who's basically created the entire library of the classic Nintendo titles. And he wrote the six-track score for Super Mario Brothers, as well as all of the game's sound effects. At the time he was composing, video game music was mostly meant to attract attention, not necessarily to enhance or conform to the game. Kondo's work on Super Mario Bros. was one of the major forces in the shift towards music becoming an integral and participatory part of video games. Kondo had two specific goals for his music. One, to convey an unambiguous sonic image of the game world, and two, to enhance the emotional and physical experience of the gamer. The music of Super Mario Bros. is coordinated with the on-screen animations of the various sprites, which was one way Kondo created a sense of greater immersion. Kondo wasn't the first to do this in a video game, for instance. Space Invaders features a simple song that gets faster and faster as the aliens speed up, eliciting a sense of stress and impending doom, which matches the increasing challenge of the game. Unlike most games at the time, for which composers were hired later in the process to add music to a nearly finished game, Kondo was a part of the development team almost from the beginning of production, working in tandem with the rest of the team to create the game's soundtrack. His compositions were largely influenced by the game's gameplay, intending for it to, quote, heighten the feeling of how the game controls. Before composition began, a prototype of the game was presented to Kondo so that he could get an idea of Mario's general environment and revolve the music around it. 
Kondo wrote the score with the help of a small piano to create appropriate melodies to fit the game's environments. And after the development of the game showed progress, Kondo began to feel that his music did not quite fit with the pace of the game, so he changed it a bit by increasing the song's tempos. The music was further adjusted based on the expectations of Nintendo's playtesters. Kondo would later compose new music for New Super Mario Bros., Ice Desert nighttime level themes that appeared in the 2019 level creator game Super Mario Maker 2. It's, it's amazing what Kondo, along with the team that he's worked with on various games, has really created. And to really draw that emphasis to like, we want you in the game. We don't want you just to react to it to like, oh, there's a, you know, someone's shooting a bow or there's danger. Like, we want you to be immersed in it. And I think it's so cool that here's a prototype, play with it. Okay, here's the thing. Mm, it doesn't fit anymore. Let me change it. And then play testers come in and be like, oh, you know, maybe if we tweak to this. And it's, it's very tough for composers, anyone in the arts, to have a criticism from someone who may not be a part of that arts. Um, like I could foresee like some bigger composers, I won't really name anyone, that have worked on bigger games nowadays who would scoff at anyone saying anything about how they put this, their work together. But for them to be like, oh, the playtesters, they didn't like how this like, sounded with that. Let's tweak it. Oh, the levels seem a bit faster. Let's up the tempo. Like, it's such a collaborative effort. And we, I think that it's really, really easy for game designers. And I'm just trying to put myself, I guess, in the time frame of the 80s, where this is, they're really developing home video games in a different way. It's easy to get so focused in on the actual gameplay and the visuals and stuff like that and not really think about the full experience. So having someone there like Koji Kondo, who's sort of implementing, I'd say, like cinematic themes into these video games uh, very from a very early stage in home video game development, I think is very influential on how video games are now. I think it's a reason that we have these big cinematic sweeps in video games and why we're seeing video games be talked about for movies or made into TV shows and because they've created an experience now that feels very similar to a cinematic experience. And I think that that whole thing started with Koji Kondo. In a lot of ways, like he created an overture for all of Nintendo that themes have expanded into obviously decades of video games, but expanded into the video gaming genre as a whole. Absolutely. I mean, this whole era of sound design and gaming was this rebirth of it. I mean, from, you know, from the crash in like early mid eighties, uh, when arcades were going downhill, you're losing out on a lot of that stuff for this resurgence to come about. It's like, what if we treat games differently? What if we bring them into the home and it is an entertainment part of it? It's not just the kids that go to the arcade, throw some quarters in and play. It's not just this thing for the computer. It's now a family thing that can be experienced by everyone, but also let's make it a bit more. Let's make it integral into what the music does. Let's, let's absorb you into these levels. And we're seeing that even in today's world, you know, going back to the talk of like not truly needing graphics per se to showcase some newer stuff. You have indie titles that are doing the same thing that Kondo did, which is like bring that music in and bring it in to get people absorbed into it. Even if you're playing an Undertale 
or you're jumping into even like something as simple as like Among Us with the sound design that's in that or uh, Stardew Valley. Anything like that that brings in this sound design makes it so much more compelling. And then you get that little bit of your brain that always is focusing on that sound or music and you hear it, it brings you back to that time or brings you back to that game. I mean, Megalovania uh, in Undertale is, is a game that, or excuse me, a song that most everyone knows and has played on some type of instrument, some different way, made it metal, made it the doorbell, made it this, and is such a catchy tune that brings you back to it. Absolutely, and I have two video game soundtracks on vinyl, uh, Pokemon Red and Blue and Skyrim. Mm -hmm. And I don't listen to them very often. I'll I'll be honest with myself and with the listeners. But um, when I do decide to listen to those things, like, you know, it takes me back to like White Run or it takes me back to being seven or eight or however old I was in my first Pokemon battle. You know, it it definitely triggers that memory and becomes such an iconic part of a video game that whenever you hear that music, whether it be, or really just the melody, not even the music itself, just the melody, in whatever form it exists in, it just gives you a certain feeling and a certain memory. And I think that that's really special. And I think that Koji Kondo, obviously just... I know he's very well regarded for obviously all the Nintendo themes, but I just, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for his influence on video games as a whole. And I think it started here. It's, it's really, I think what makes Mario games too, is you can hit that da, 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 da. You hear that, you know, where you are, like, you know, it. like, even if you haven't played in a long time, you're playing a newer one where it's a nice adaptation of it. Like, even when you get into, um, Mario 64, and you hear, like, when you start to enter a level, and you hear all these, like, other bits, like, da na 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 It's simple. It's just this, like, repeating pattern that eventually has a little, like, flightiness to it that can have repetition on these levels. And not only that, it's so simple and rhythmic that, I mean, I hear it just when I'm typing on a keyboard, and I'll just type something in that'll just be like, <laughs> yeah. na 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 I'm like, oh, man, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> or dun, 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 dun. I used to type things into a calculator, yeah. um, like a physical calculator all the time, just like, you know, cash mm-hmm. registers at retail jobs or whatever. And for whatever reason, sure. you know, it always sounded very similar to that, where it'd be like, dun, 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 enter. And then, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a happy accent sometimes. When you do it, and you're like, your mind hits, it's like, oh, yes, yeah, that. It's done so well. And that's why we're about to give you a plethora of it. We have so many release versions and variations on it that not like that we see just Super Mario Bros. itself. So let's go ahead and break down when it came out, where we're seeing it years later, and where we're seeing it today. So Super Mario Bros. was first released in Japan on Friday the 13th of September 1985 for the Famicom. It was released later that year in North America for the NES. Its exact North American release date is debated, though most sources report it was released in October 1985 as a launch game when the NES had a limited release in the U.S. Several sources suggest it was released between November 1985 and early 1986. Even then, we had the physical gaming leaks 
Back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The arcade port for the Nintendo Versus system debuted in London in 1986 and was released in other countries in February 86. It was the first version of Super Mario Bros. to receive a wide international release, and many outside Japan were introduced to the game through the arcade version. The NES version received a wide North American release that year, followed by Europe on May 15, 1987. In 1988, Super Mario Bros. was re-released along with the shooting range game Duck Hunt as part of a single ROM cartridge which came packaged with the NES as a pack-in game as part of the console's action set. This version of the game is extremely common in North America, with millions of copies of it having been manufactured and sold in the United States. In 1990, another cartridge, touting the two games as well as world-class track meet, was also released in North America as part of the NES Power set. It was released on May 15, 1987 in Europe, and during that year in Australia as well. In 1988, the game was re-released in Europe in a cartridge containing the game plus Tetris and Nintendo World Cup. The compilation was sold alone or bundled with the revised version of the NES. So again, this very early on bundling of trying to get people to buy more consoles of being like, not only can you shoot at the TV, you can jump on stuff. So let's go ahead and start to package those together. And all video game consoles have done this, where after a few years, maybe the sales started to decline. Hey, you can buy this version. It's in a different color. It comes with a certain game. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the Wii that I had. It was the red version that came with New Super Mario Brothers. There have been Xboxes released that look like uh, they're in, you know, the colors of the Master Chief, whatever it might be. I personally had this version with the Mm -hmm. world-class track meet thing, and it came with the gun. And it came with the pad, which was crazy. I don't know. Just a a bizarre game. (laughs) So much fun, but so, so strange. The world's first DDR. So, of course, we had the 1986 arcade adaptation of Super Mario Brothers, and it was called Versus Super Mario Brothers, released on the Nintendo Versus system and the Nintendo Vs. Unisystem and its variant Nintendo Versus Dual System and existing levels were made much more difficult with narrower platforms, more dangerous enemies, fewer hidden power-ups, and 200 coins needed for an extra life instead of the usual 100. Several of the new levels went on to be featured in the Japanese sequel, Super Mario Bros. 2, which is maybe one of the worst games of all time. Just going to throw that out there. The arcade game was not officially released in Japan, and illegal coin-op versions made from a Famicom console placed inside an arcade cabinet, became available in Japanese arcades by January 1986. Nintendo threatened legal action or prosecution, such as a fine or threatening a maximum sentence of up to three years in prison against Japanese arcade operators with co-op versions of the game. Japanese arcade operators were still able to access the illegal coin-op versions through 1987. Outside of Japan, Versus Super Mario Bros. was officially released for arcades and overseas markets during early 1986, becoming the first version of the game to get a wide international release. The arcade game debuted at the 1986 Amusement Trades Exhibition International, or ATEI, show in London, held in January 1986. This was the first appearance of Super Mario Bros. in Europe. The arcade game then received a wide international release for overseas markets 
outside of Japan in February 1986, initially in the form of a ROM software conversion kit. In North America, the game was featured in an official contest during the ACME convention in Chicago, held in March 1986, becoming a popular attraction at the show. It soon drew a loyal following across North American arcades and appeared as the 8th top-grossing arcade video game on the U.S. Play Meter arcade charts in May of 1986, and it went on to sell 20,000 arcade units within a few months, becoming the best-selling Nintendo Versus system release, with each unit consistently earning an average of more than $200 per week. It became the 13th highest-grossing arcade game of 1986 in the U.S., according to the annual Replay Arcade chart, which was topped by Sega's Hang On. In Europe, it became a very popular arcade game in 86 as well. And the arcade version introduced Super Mario Bros. to many players who did not own an NES. An emulated version of the game was released for the Nintendo Switch via the Arcade Archives collection on December 22, 2017. Playing that release, Chris Kohler of Kotaku called the game's intense difficulty the meanest trick Nintendo ever played. I did buy this version, and it is hard. <laughs> it's, it's really cool to see that we do get a little bit of a resurgence in arcade machines. You know, we're originally making it to the home console, mostly in Japan, hitting the U.S. and North America later. But they're like, hey, what if we make a harder version for arcades, which is what most games were made to be, is difficult to keep feeding the quarters. And to have that and to have that come out, people have like never experienced a home console. They were, I mean, home consoles were very expensive when they came out. You know, we're thinking now of like five, six, seven hundred. I mean, that's equivalent of when we go for inflation and what stuff's worth. It was like 800 bucks for some of these consoles very early on. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about the price of video games escalating. It's like the games were still priced very high back then, you know. Mm hmm. Games have been fairly consistent and consoles have been fairly consistent in terms of, of price. And it is difficult. I actually uh, went to an arcade bar a few years ago while I was on a business trip in Detroit and encountered one of these machines and mm. played it with uh, my coworker, a colleague at the time. And it is very hard. It was very difficult. And I did not plan on putting that many quarters into a game that I had bought that many times. <laughs> Maybe back in the 80s, if I had encountered it, I would have given it a better shot. But sure, no, I think I'll just go home and play it there or play it on my phone or do it some other way and put my money in a pinball machine. But it was a lot of fun. For sure. That's cool to hear. Yeah, that, that's really awesome. Like You still see stuff in the wild like that, which is so much fun. The new resurgence of arcades, especially arcade bars, is pretty cool. Now, a couple more... Remakes and adaptations we had at the time. We had the Super Mario Bros. Special, a remake of the game titled Super Mario Bros. Special, developed by Hudson Soft, was released in Japan in 1986 for the NEC PC 8801 and Sharp X1 personal computers. Though featuring similar controls and graphics, the game lacks screen scrolling due to hardware limitations, has difficult level designs, and new items and new enemies based on Mario Bros. and Donkey Kong. So. It's special. It's That's super, how we add that. Even. Uh, super special. Super special. 
We also had Game & Watch. A handheld LCD game under the same name was released as part of Nintendo's Game & Watch line of LCD games. We had modified versions of it, and several modified variants of the game have been released, many of which are ROM hacks of the original NES games. On November 11, 2010, a special red variant of the Wii, containing a pre-downloaded version of the game, was released in Japan to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Several graphical changes include question mark blocks with the number 25 on them. All night, Nippin' Super Mario Bros., a promotional, graphically modified version of Super Mario Bros., was officially released in Japan in December 1986 for the Famicom Disk System as a promotional item given away by the popular Japanese radio show All Night Nippon. The game was published by Fuji TV, which later published Yumi Kojo Doki Doki Panic. The game features graphics based upon the show, with sprites of the enemies, mushroom retainers, and other characters being changed to look like famous Japanese music idols, recording artists, and DJs, as well as other people related to the All Night Nippon. The game makes use of the same slightly upgraded graphics and alternate physics featured in the Japanese release of Super Mario Bros. 2. The modern collector market considers it extremely rare, selling for nearly $500 US. Baby. Got to get you that, that all-night nipple. Then <laughs> so we also have Super Luigi Bros. It's a redo, or a redux, of the game featuring within NES Remix 2, based on a mission in NES Remix. It stars only Luigi in a mirrored version of World 1-2, scrolling from left to right with a higher jump and a slide similar to the Japanese Super Mario Bros. 2. And finally, as we had talked about... Oh, we had not talked about it. This is actually something, I was thinking of a different anniversary. We had Super Mario Bros. 35, which was the 35th anniversary release for it. It was a 35-player Battle Royale version of the game released in 2020 that was available to play for a limited time for Nintendo Switch Online subscribers, which was such a cool game, and it's such a shame. I also don't understand why it's a limited release, but it was so cool, because you basically did this Battle Royale where you played through levels, and you kept earning more and more coins and time. And as you kept earning that and using power-ups against each other, you could actually send enemies over that you killed to certain people. They'd have like these little ghost sprites with them. Mm-hmm. And if you died, you were out. That was your battle royale. You had one life, you were gone. And time would go faster and faster and faster until you only had one person left. It was really cool. I did play this a few times. I had been a big Tetris 99 guy. Mm-hmm. Never had won one. Finished top three a few times. but Sure. Uh, Super Mario Brothers 35. Yeah, I don't know why they got rid of that. I thought it was really cool. Sometimes I think they just get in the way of themselves. They have a really great idea. They really want to hype it up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. The Yeah, I think the the version that we were thinking about was uh, the 25th anniversary. I think that's yes, when the they did one. that Red Wii, and then they re-released Super Mario All-Stars, basically. And it, it came with a soundtrack as well. That's when I decided to hop back into the Wii game. And on that note, there was actually a Super Mario All-Stars before the 25th anniversary edition, a compilation game released in 1993 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. This is what was later released on the Wii. Features a remade version of Super Mario Brothers alongside remakes of several other Super Mario games released for the NES. The version of Super Mario Bros. included in this compilation has improved graphics and sound to match the SNES's 16-bit capabilities, 
as well as minor alterations to some of the game's collision mechanics. The game also features the ability for a player to save their progress midway through the game and changes the game's multiplayer mode so that the two players switch off after every level in addition to wherever a player dies. Super Mario All-Stars was also re-released for the Wii as a repackaged 25th anniversary version, as I said, featuring the same version of the game along with a 32-page art book and a compilation CD of music from various Super Mario games. And so, yeah, it's not just a CD that is strictly the SNES stuff or the NES stuff. I mean, it's got stuff from Mario Galaxy 64. Uh, mm -hmm. New Super Mario Brothers. There was the occasional morning. I'd pop that in the car, the old vehicle, on my way to work. And uh, just listen to some new Super Mario Brothers. It was a nice, nice way to wake up my morning with some coffee. I will say that the SNES version of this game, I do not prefer. I think that it worked a lot better in the 8-bit version just because of some of that collision stuff that they talked about. Mm -hmm. I, I think that if you're more familiar with the NES version, you're probably going to struggle a little bit more with the SNES stuff, but it could just be me. Sure. Then we also had Super Mario Brothers Deluxe, sometimes referred to as Super Mario Brothers DX, and that was released on the Game Boy Color on May 10th, 1999 in North America and Europe and in 2000 in Japan. Based on the original Super Mario Bros., it features an overworld level map, simultaneous multiplayer, a challenge mode in which the player finds hidden objects and achieves a certain score in addition to normally completing the level, and eight additional worlds based on the main worlds of the Japanese 1986 game Super Mario Bros. 2. It is compatible with the Game Boy printer. Compared to Super Mario Bros., the game features a few minor visual upgrades such as water and lava now being animated rather than static, and a smaller screen due to the lower resolution of the Game Boy Color. It was released on the Nintendo 3DS Virtual Console in 2014. In Japan, users who registered a Nintendo Network ID on their Nintendo 3DS between December 10, 2013 and January 10, 2014 received a free download code with emails and download codes being sent out starting January 27th of that year. Games Radar Plus placed the game at number 15 in its list of the greatest Game Boy games of all time, explaining that Nintendo could have simply ported the game, but instead they expanded on it. The staff opined that the only downside was the camera in the game. Jeremy Parrish of US Gamer praised the game, comparing it more favorably to Super Mario All-Stars which he said basically just improved the graphics from 8-bit to 16-bit. Instead, he praised Super Mario Bros. DX for adding considerably more to the original games, like the secret unlockable bonus, the addition of the lost levels, new objectives, modes, and multiplayer mechanics, along with the ability to play with Luigi's reduced friction and higher jumping physics. He described it as a comprehensive overhaul of the whole Super Mario Bros. video game. Additionally, Kevin Webb of Game Informer named the game as one of the greatest Game Boy games of all time, and meanwhile, the Esquire staff ranked it as the ninth greatest Game Boy game. Not much coming out for the Game Boy, was there? <laughs> yeah, this is yeah shocking. I mean, I mean, it's really I mean, shocking to me. It's it's amazing that they added all of this in you know about a t 13, 12 year span, adapting from you know Mario Bros. Two. All-Stars, things like that. But adding to it, adding these lost levels, especially for a handheld game. Handheld games have typically been 
the like stepchild of the gaming universe where like there's like some bad ports to it or some okay games i mean granted we do get pokemon we get various other like handheld titles that have become huge on it yeah but yeah you you would think this would just be like some like okay port that went over but to add a lot more into it that's pretty big yeah it's and it's the the effort should be commended i think that ranking it as one of the greatest Game Boy games of all time is maybe going a little bit far, but I don't know. Yeah. Obviously, it was a really important to some people, but just For not sure. to me. <laughs> now, let's talk about emulation um, and bringing this uh, ROMs to the ability to use them on different consoles, different versions of it. So as one of Nintendo's most popular games, Super Mario Bros. has been re-released and remade numerous times. With every single major Nintendo console up to the Nintendo Switch sporting its own port or remake of the game, with the exception of the Nintendo 64. In early 2003, Super Mario Bros. was ported to the Game Boy Advance as part of the Famicom Minis collection in Japan and as part of the NES series in the US. This version of the game is entirely emulated, making it completely identical to the original game. According to the NPD group, which tracks game sales in North America, this re-released version of Super Mario Bros. was the best-selling Game Boy Advance game from June 04 through December of 04. In 2005, Nintendo re-released this port of the game as part of the game's 20th anniversary. This special edition of the game went on to sell approximately 876,000 units. Baby. That's a lot. Now, coming to my heart... The game is one of the 19 unlockable NES games included in the GameCube game Animal Crossing. Yeah. For which it was distributed by Famitsu as a prize for owners of Dobatsu no Mori Plus. Outside of this, the game can't be unlocked through in-game conventional means, and the only way to access it is through the use of a third-party cheat device such as a Game Shark or Action Replay. Yeah. Who didn't love that? Oh my god, it's so much funny. Like, especially like, especially like, because I had a uh, an action replay for GameCube, mm-hmm. and seeing that you got basically two more games in Animal Crossing, I was like, "Ooh, baby, we're gonna get all of them now." <laughs> yeah, I remember playing Animal Crossing at your house, and it just really being like within your house, within the game, uh, just mm-hmm. like a hall. It was basically an arcade. Oh yeah, uh, just I a mean, bunch you of have NES to. How else you right? <laughs> And we also had, uh, so Super Mario Bros. is featured as one of the 30 included games with the NES Classic Edition, a dedicated video game console containing several NES games. This version of the game allows for the use of suspension points to save in-game progress and can be played in various different display styles, including its original 4x3 resolution, a pixel-perfect resolution, and a style emulating the look of a cathode ray tube television. And in November 2020, a new version of the Game & Watch Super Mario Bros. was released, which features the original NES version of the game with some modifications. It starts with the A button, adds the unlocking of hard mode after completing the normal game, which was originally lost when the NES was turned off, and adds an infinite Mario mode, which starts the game with unlimited lives if the A button is held at the title screen. So we had, yeah, a couple of releases where I was like, they came out with like mini consoles of like the Sega and NES, Super NES, mm-hmm. um, and included in that. And not only that, you can also, through your own means that you figure out, 
have an emulator like on your computer or in your Steam Deck to be able to play all these as well. Yes, through your own means, not endorsed yep, exactly. by the Finish the Fight podcast. Just aware of. Yeah, you're just aware that it's, that's a thing that you may or may not do. Who knows? <laughs> don't, don't sue us, Nintendo. And of course... <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't used any of their content yet. I, I can't put any of the songs in this podcast. or We're done. <laughs> Super Mario Bros. has been re-released for several of Nintendo's game systems as a part of their virtual console line of classic video game releases. It was first released for the Wii on December 2nd, 2006 in Japan, and then later December 25th for North America and January 5th in the PAL regions. It releases a complete emulation of the original game, meaning that nothing has changed from its original NES release. This version of the game is also one of the trial games made available in the Masterpieces section in Super Smash Bros. Brawl, where it can be demoed for a limited amount of time. A Nintendo 3DS release of the game was initially distributed exclusively to members of the 3DS Ambassador Program in September 2011, but then was released in 2012 to the general public. So like I said, it's been one of those things that's so cool, cool, money-grabbing. I don't know. It's one of those things that's very interesting to see that this game has come out so many times, whether in just a straight emulated format ripped from the cartridge or updated for a harder release, updated for a graphical release, updated for a new system or put into Animal Crossing, one of the greatest games of all time. It's cool to see that we have games like that. And... Unfortunately, a lot of it's a bygone era of the Animal Crossing-esque, you know, free, once you find those like little NES systems, you can play Excite Bike, Punch-Out, the full games. It's now a money-earning thing, but that is also, on a side note, to throw some tangent in here, it's also one of the biggest complaints that people have. Nintendo, we want to play your games, especially your older games. And when you don't emulate, even though I'm complaining about emulation, but when you don't emulate it or put on a newer thing... I unfortunately, not me, don't sue me, Nintendo, some other people may have to go online and find ROMs to play through an emulated game. Correct. And find some these ROMs people. to be able to play those games. Some people. And that's unfortunate. And it's unfortunate that, you know, Nintendo then docks that. I get making money. I'll pay you for a lot of these older games. But when you only do like Super Mario Bros. 18 times and you don't really touch any of your other games with it, it makes it frustrating. Yeah. But... To bring it back to the point, it is cool that we do see this very early on, that the game is adapted into many formats, adapted for many regions to be able to play it, and really drove the home console market. Super Mario Brothers was immensely successful, both commercially and critically. It helped popularize the side-scrolling platform game genre and served as a killer app for the NES. Upon release in Japan, it sold 1.2 million copies during its September 1985 release month. And within four months, about 3 million copies were sold in Japan, grossing more than 12.2 billion yen, equivalent to 72 million U.S. dollars at the time, which inflation adjusted to 173 million U.S. dollars in 2020. The success of Super Mario Bros. helped increase Famicom's sales to 6.2 million units by January 1986, and by 87, 5 million copies of the game had been sold for the Famicom. Outside of Japan, many were introduced to the game through the arcade version, which became the best-selling Nintendo Versus system release with 20,000 arcade units sold within a few months in early 1986. 
In the United States, the NES version went on to sell more than 1 million copies in 86, more than 4 million by 88, 9.1 million by mid-89, and more than 18.7 million by early 90. Nearly 19 million by April 1990 and more than 20 million by 1991. The original NES version had sold 40 million copies worldwide by 94 and 40.23 million by April 2000, for which it was awarded the Guinness World Record for best-selling video game of all time. Altogether, excluding ports and re-releases, 40.24 million copies of the original NES release have been sold worldwide, with 29 million copies sold in North America. Including ports and re-releases, more than 58 million units have been sold worldwide. The game was the all-time best-selling game for more than 20 years until its lifetime sales were ultimately surpassed by Wii Sports. What a, what a, well, let me jump in there real quick. What a game to be surpassed by. Don't get me wrong. Wii Sports, a classic, a, a beautiful mwah, 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 masterpiece. But to be like on this train, rocking the 80s, rocking through the 90s, rocking into the 2000s, then it's like you hear, great shot. You hear all these other sounds? Mm-mm. That's Wii Sports, baby, coming at you. Wii Sports, man, when you wanted to do things physical, but you couldn't go outside. That was basically my pandemic game. My wife and I definitely brought the Wii back out and just did a little bowling mm-hmm. inside. Oh, yeah. Maybe a little golf, looking for a little fresh air. I guess you could have done oh, golf. I probably should have. Tennis action, just, some good times. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I could have just gone and done those things. But I didn't, because I didn't have to. And that's because you knew, Derek, you knew you go, this is the best selling game of all time. Yeah, (laughs) it beats Super Mario Bros. I got to play it again. Why would I go out and do things when I could just stay inside and not do them, but sort of do exactly the The game's Wii Virtual Console release was also successful, reaching number one by mid 2007 and at an estimated 660,000 units for $3.2 million outside of Japan and Korea in 2009. In August 2021, an anonymous buyer paid $2 million for a never-opened copy of Super Mario Bros., according to collectible site Rally, surpassing the 1.56 million sales record set by Super Mario 64 the previous month. And why I ever played these video games, I'll never know. Could have been making the greatest investment of my life. That's what I'm saying. If, if we never played, we could have been a player. That's right. Think how deep that is. I'm like, hashtag deep thoughts. Oh, that's good. Hashtag investment advice. Boom. That's it for you guys. Go back in time. Don't open copies. Bring them now. Sell them for $2 million. You're welcome. That's my favorite school time daydream. Yep. <laughs> Listen, Back to the Future knew what they were doing. That's right. And let's get back to this episode with that beautiful segue. Let's talk about the legacy. Let's talk about what, not just the numbers, not the sales, you know, not being destroyed by Wii Sports. What did Mario leave? The success of Super Mario Bros. led to the development of many successors in the Super Mario series of video games, which in turn formed the core of the greater Mario franchise. Two of these sequels, Super Mario Bros. 2 and Super Mario Bros. 3, were direct sequels to the game and were released for the NES, experiencing similar levels of commercial success. A different sequel, also titled Super Mario Bros. 2, was released for the Famicom Disk System in 1986 exclusively 
in Japan and was later released elsewhere as a part of Super Mario All-Stars under the name Super Mario Bros. The Lost Levels. The gameplay concepts and elements established in Super Mario Bros. are prevalent in nearly every Super Mario game. The series consists of over 15 entries. At least one Super Mario game has been released on nearly every Nintendo console to date. Super Mario 64 is widely considered one of the greatest games ever made and is largely credited with revolutionizing the platforming genre of video games in its step from 2D to 3D. The series is one of the best-selling, with more than 310 million units sold worldwide as of September 2015. In 2010, Nintendo released special red variants of the Wii and Nintendo DSi XL consoles in repackaged Mario-themed limited-edition bundles as part of the 25th anniversary of the game's original release. To celebrate the series' 30th anniversary, Nintendo released Super Mario Maker, a game for the Wii U which allows players to create custom platforming stages using assets from Super Mario games and in the style of Super Mario Bros., along with other styles based around different games in the series. The game's success helped to push Mario as a worldwide cultural icon. In 1990, a study taken in North America suggested that more children in the United States were familiar with Mario than they were with Mickey Mouse. The game's musical score composed by Koji Kondo, particularly the game's overworld theme, the da 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 has also become a prevalent aspect of popular culture, with the latter theme being featured in nearly every single Super Mario game. Alongside the NES platform, Super Mario Bros. is often credited for having resurrected the video game industry after the market crash of 83. In the United States Supreme Court case Brown v. Entertainment Merchants Association, the Electronic Frontier Foundation submitted an amicus brief which supported overturning a law which would have banned violent video games in the state of California. The brief cited social research that declared Super Mario Bros., among several others, to contain cartoon violence similar to that found in children's programs such as Mighty Mouse and Roadrunner that garnered, you know, little negative reaction from the public. Because of its status within the video game industry and being an early Nintendo game, Mint-conditioned copies of Super Mario Bros. have been considered collector's items. In 2019, the auction of a near-mint sealed box version of the game was sold for just over $100,000 and which is considered to have drawn wider interest in the field of video game collecting. A year later, in July 2020, a similar near-mint sealed box copy of the game, from the period when Nintendo was transitioning from sticker seals to shrink wrap, went for U.S. $114,000. At the time, the highest price ever for a single video game. Video game developer Yuji Naka cited Super Mario Bros. as a large inspiration towards the concept for the immensely successful 91 Sega Genesis game Sonic the Hedgehog. According to Naka, the general idea for the game first materialized when he was playing through the game and trying to beat the game's first level as quickly as possible and thought about the concept of a platformer based around moving as fast as possible. Hey, we did an episode on that. Sounds Mm -hmm. pretty familiar. Super Mario Bros. has served as inspiration for several fan games. In 2009, developer Swing Swing released Tuper Tario Tros, a game which combines elements of Super Mario Bros. with Tetris. Super Mario Bros. Crossover, a PC fan game developed by Jay Pavlina and released in 2010 as a free 
browser-based game is a full recreation of Super Mario Brothers that allows the player to alternatively control various other characters from Nintendo games, including Mega Man, Link from The Legend of Zelda, Samus from Metroid, and Simon Belmont from Castlevania. Mari Zero, released in December 2012, combines elements of the game with that of Portal by giving Mario a portal-making gun with which to teleport through the level and full-screen Mario adds a level editor. In 2015, game designer Josh Millard released Inuigi, a metafictional fan game with commentary on the original game which relates to Luigi's inability to come to terms with the game's overall lack of narrative. Super Mario Bros. is substantial in speedrunning esports with coverage beyond video gaming and a specific version for the Guinness World Records. So there's not... You cannot understate how important this game is to just the history of gaming overall. I mean, there's just, there's just so much that goes along with it. We've stated it many times, like soundtracks in your head. The name Mario rings true all over. And there's just so much that can be attributed to this. Would we have had a Mario if they hadn't developed it or, you know, a platformer like this? Maybe. I mean, you know, Sonic was kind of hot on those heels, you know, four years, five years later. But it's because these people had seen this thing and seen the precision and the quality that was put into this. And I mean, really, a lot of what made it what it was was using that Excite Bike engine, allowing you to run, allowing it not to just be like one snail's pace of like jumping back and forth, but to have a variation of jump, a variation of walking and running that made it such a cool title. So, Derek, as always, why do we choose this game? And what do you think? All the reasons you just said, top down, this is one of the most influential video games that has ever existed. Some might even really truly consider this to be like the entry point into modern video gaming. Yep. I think that this character is iconic and an entire company has built its face around this character. Mm -hmm. And... Overall, just talking about the game, it's still a lot of fun. Like, I have an NES Classic. I have an original NES. I have a Switch with the NES Virtual Console. I had a 3DS. I had a Wii, a GameCube, all these different devices, a Game Boy. And I was able to play this game on just about every single one of those things and still enjoy it just as much as I did originally when I was a kid. Uh, funnily enough, this is most definitely the game that made, it turned my dad from a gamer into not a gamer because (laughs) I got better at it than him when I was Mm -hmm. like a child. So it's kind of funny, you know, they talk about that first level, like it's a tutorial and it was, and I'm sure that like someone like my dad had to go and learn that. I know a lot of our audience is younger. And they probably didn't grow up necessarily playing this game on NES. I absolutely did. And I learned from my dad just how to get through those first few levels. And so there's a lot of nostalgia in this game for me. Where, I, you know, it takes me back to that first house when I was a kid. Just kind of chilling, sitting, playing this game. And for me, it provides a lot of comfort. And just... It it's still fun. Like I can still sit down and just go and play this game and feel just as good about it. And it's a game that I can pick up at any time, 
put down at any time and not feel like I'm totally lost on what I'm doing. And that's my favorite type of video game. So I love this game. My only criticism, which I already gave earlier in the episode, is that uh, the multiplayer, I think, made this game not as much fun to play with two players originally when it came out. And for that reason, I'm going to give it like an 8 out of 10. There are certain moments of, I think, frustration as well, where just certain sprites like don't add up or there's a little glitch or delay when you play it on the original format. Um, 8 out of 10. Alex, what about you? Okay. I mean, you know, I think bringing up a lot of those points that you and I had earlier, I mean, there's, there's not too much more to say like, of why we chose it. I mean, I think it's pretty apparent, and I think it was kind of expected for this to come along at some point. Um, it, it is a gaming staple. I mean, it is a game that so many people who may not have even played the original have played some other form of it. Like you said, whether it is in a newer title, whether it's in a uh, emulated port, whether it's on the original NES or the little like mini. There's so many different nuances with it that have established gaming for what it is. Even if you hate Nintendo, you don't like the games, you think they're for babies, whatever the different variations people think of stuff. It's attributed to modern gaming all over, no matter if you're an FPS player, if you're an adventure player, you know, a side-scrolling player, whatever you play, it's definitely had some attribution into that. So if I had to give it a score, I would give it a Wahoo. Um, divide that by uh, wow, 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 which is a later sound that Mario makes when he touches lava, um, obviously. Um, followed by a doot, 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 doot. That's a, a Starman eventually um, in, in, in a, good, a good time zone um, when Starmans happen. Um, but, then, but then really, I think even put it to the power of Luigi's stardom, um, which blossomed over time um, because it became crucial to what was necessary for our boy. Um, out of how many laps uh, Mario could run within Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games out of 10. It's good. I, I didn't understand it. Throwback to the Among it's, Us. It is tough. It sus. is tough. It, 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 it may be, you know, ar- archaic at times that people may think, which which is totally understandable when it comes to it. but. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a true gamer's game, and that was a true gamer's review. It's true. You do play video games. So <laughs> true. Te- technically, it is true. <laughs> technically, it's true. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music for our episode was composed and recorded by our friend Evan Barr, and the new beautiful artwork for the podcast was designed by Aaron Shattuck. And... If you haven't checked us out, if you're looking for a way to support us, you know, support my apparently terrible talking habit as well. <laughs> if you want to support us, check us out over at Patreon. Um, we're doing some cool stuff over there. We've got our bonus episodes, our post shows. We're recording one after this. Talk about what's going on in life, as well as our D&D sessions, our Minecraft server, and plenty of other things to check out over there. We want to thank a couple of our select members with Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Chalk, Nick Hyman, McChief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, and Lee Tomjohn. Thank you guys for supporting us. We truly, truly appreciate it. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or 
most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, leave us a review. Helps us out a lot, and we'd love to hear from you. And as always, you can check us out on Twitch. That is over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0 for me, for moi. And if you want to check Derek out, that is twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is thebakerman247. If you haven't yet, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. We're also on Discord. Alex and I are in there hanging out, having a lot of fun. We love to see you guys in there. It's free to join, and a lot of our members are pretty fun in there as well, I do have to say. Come and stop by. And that was our coverage of the Super Mario Bros. Have you guys played the original? I assume that you've played at least one of them somewhere. You know of it, but what do you think? Do you think there's a game that's more influential in gaming itself or in your gaming life that you would want to put at the top of the list? Let us know. So, as always, I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. (laughs) 